Is depression funny? There's nothing funny about being trapped in the depths and the midst of depression. Like when you have nothing but despair, there's nothing funny about it. But I think we can share some funny stories. I think there's some stories that are funny. Um, and I think when you look back and when you realize that, you know, there is hope and that you can be okay. And you could look back at certain things and like, I was so silly not to take this path. But damn, I really did that. You know what I mean? So I think the stories, but there's nothing, to me, there's nothing hilarious about depression. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. On this program, we talk to funny, creative people about their experiences with depression. My name is Reggie Osei, also known as Combat Jack, and we are in Brooklyn, New York. And this episode is pretty unusual, and I need a bit more time to set it up. Between when we taped the interview and now, Reggie Osei died. Reggie hosted the Combat Jack Show podcast, and he was an iconic figure in hip-hop, former editor of The Source magazine, former attorney for Jay-Z and Sean Diddy Combs. He knew everyone in that world. I talked with Reggie in October of 2017, and he was diagnosed with colon cancer shortly after that interview. He died on December 20th. Our conversation was one of the last interviews he gave. And ever since we taped, I had been talking about it to people, quoting it, bringing up the issues it presented, and just thinking about it a lot. Because to me, it connected a lot of things about being human and society, race, music, family. And you don't need to be in the communities that Reggie was part of to appreciate what he says and to find it helpful. The interview had come about because of an article in The New Yorker that Chrissy Pease, our producer, had read. It was about a podcast called Mogul from Gimlet Media and Loudspeakers Network. Mogul was narrated by Reggie Osei, and it was all about the life of this guy Chris Lighty. And Chris Lighty started out lugging boxes of records for DJs and rose up to become one of the most powerful people in hip-hop. He managed 50 Cent, Busta Rhymes, Missy Elliott, and he killed himself in 2012. The podcast, Mogul, looks for answers. Here's a clip from the first episode with Reggie and Chris Lighty's sister, Nicole. Early 1980s, those were the years of the boombox. Remember those? Big-ass radio tape players that we carry around blasting the latest songs. They were so synonymous with the streets that people call them ghetto blasters. We had dance contests in the house, all of that. Oh, it was great. I have a twin brother, you know, Mike, me and Mike are twins. And uh, Michael was the break dancer, so we did everything from the cardboard box on the floor. But yeah, yeah, Chris and his boombox, oh, that boombox. Man, I don't even know when he got rid of that. <laughs> but it was that was a big part of our childhood. What the ladies were doing here was a little kid version of something that they were seeing right outside of their window. Across the city, DJs hooked up turntables and speakers to lampposts and would spin records in parks, courtyards, handball courts, anywhere there was a space for a crowd. We called them park jams. And it was at these park jams that what we know today as hip-hop was born. Reggie Osei had done all this looking into Lighty's depression and what it meant in the world of hip-hop and the black community. And in that New Yorker article, Reggie said that research made him realize that he was also depressed. Well into middle age, Reggie Osei had come to this new understanding of himself. 
Reggie grew up in Brooklyn. He went to Cornell University wanting to be an artist, but eventually he got on a path that took him to Georgetown Law School, then a job working as a lawyer for the seminal rap label Def Jam. After that, he went into practice for himself and eventually got into media, ultimately becoming Combat Jack. The Combat Jack show is known for being a place where guests from the world of hip-hop can drop their guard, their toughness, and open up and often cry. Here's a bit of an episode with the rapper Scarface, and you'll also hear Reggie's co-host, Premium Pete. Write your heart, man. Like You're talking about a lot of things in here, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about some shit in here, bro. Yeah, and you also reflected what's really going on, right? I mean, what's really been going on, but what's really I going just, on right now, man. I just reached for my phone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something he always speaks about that um, I don't think is touched enough on in hip-hop in general is depression and suicide and, you know, face, you always talk about stuff like that and what you well, go listen, through. Pete, you got to think about it. That's the shit I go through in my life. You know what I'm saying? Like, check this out. If he's not writing his heart, he know he writing about the wrong shit. Yeah, and and, and on a, on a, that's what I go. That's what I feel in life. You know, originally when I when I wrote this song, it was about that. You know, like like having those those feelings, man. Um, and you still go through them, man. Every day, every day, all the, all the time. The Combat Jack Show is also a place of laughs and fun. This is from an episode with rapper Rock Marciano. I'm surprised to, 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 to find out that one of your greatest influences is Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, I understand, Big but tell, you tell me why. You, you didn't have a glove with the glitter? I, 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 I didn't have the glove with the glitter. I didn't have the, the red the zipper. I tried to make one. Wait, wait, you had the, you had the <laughs> you glove. You ain't want a thriller jacket? No, I, I, did not, I didn't have that. <laughs> you said, you ain't, I didn't have one either, nigga. I mean, I wanted one. Rock, did, right, you right, have, right. did you have a red zipper jacket, my nigga? No, I wanted one. You had a white gloves, my nigga? Listen, man. <laughs> How's my, my guard brother. Yeah. My guard brother, his grandmother, I remember she was supposed to make us Thriller jackets. I was so excited. It never happened, though. It was some, you know, <laughs> was you some, know some... she was pulling our coat. Never happened, though. But I wanted one. I ain't have one, though. I mean, we, we was poor. You think I had a Thriller jacket, nigga? <laughs> I'm, just, projects, I'm, nigga. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just saying, man. But, no but, but tell jacket. me. So this episode of our show is going to be a bit different than most. It won't have me narrating through the clips like I usually do. It's pretty much Reggie and me sitting in a tiny room at Gimlet Studios in Brooklyn. And a lot of it is about hip-hop, because to understand what Reggie has to say about depression and about his own life and his own experiences, you have to understand what that culture meant to him. We started off talking about how since the Mogul podcast had come out, people had been approaching Reggie to open up to him about their own depression. I guess because uh, the topic of uh, of depression was, you know, a main part of the storyline of Mogul, um, and it really impacted a lot of people who listened to Mogul. Um, and I guess it really unpacked or really introduced a lot of people that, you know, there's a lot of depression in, in, in the black community that we've been trained or conditioned to ignore or to move past. Um, and I, I don't think when you think about issues affecting the black community, you don't think about depression. Conditioned to move past in yourself or in the community? I think primarily in yourself and as a greater part, a greater part of yourself as a community. Um, I've heard stories, you know, on, on my show, The Combat Jack Show, the podcast, um, I've always been a proponent for mental health. Um, and I get, you know, I get these stories from, from, from some of the listeners that are just amazing. Um, and one story in particular that stands out 
is this young man reached out to me and said, you know, we, we had a therapist on one of the episodes of my show because I had a crew on the show and we were not getting along. There was a lot of dysfunction in the show. So we had a therapy episode. And uh, a young man reached out to me. I think he was in his early 20s. And I think he was from the West Coast. And he really thanked me for doing that show. And he shared with me a story that affected his life. Um, and uh, he got shot, I think, when he was 16 or 17 years old. Um, and he survived. And after, such, after uh, surviving such a, a tr tr such a traumatic experience, he was really afraid to go outside. And his neighborhood teased him. They tease him like, dude, won't you fucking man up? Like, won't you come out? Like, won't you? Are you not a tough guy? You're not a man anymore? And, you know, he had to live through that until he heard, you know, us addressing that this is an issue in the neighborhood, in our communities. Think about that. Like, think about him not being able to feel, not even being aware. It's not even being able, not even being, not even being aware that his physical trauma impacted him mentally. Did he think of it as just, I'm so scared after this? Or did he see it as there's a condition here? There's a mental illness. I think after, I think the more he learned from our show, from whatever else that he researched, he realized that he did have an issue or condition. But prior to that, I think he struggled with, like most of us struggle in our communities, what's wrong with me? I've heard it said in, in other interviews I've done that some of this has to do with secrets, that there are family secrets in the black community, things that that have happened. And there's a culture about not handing those, you know, not revealing those, handing them down, but but keeping them bottled up because it means vulnerability. I, I don't I mean, I'm not really familiar about the secrets angle as much as I'm if you look historically, I mean, from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow, um, you know, we've always been forced to act, to get up and continue to move forward. Um, and I don't think there's been that, in a sense, luxury of getting ourselves checked out. Our relationship with the medical industry is kind of shaky. We don't, you know, we, so many black men that I know, including myself, I hate to go to the doctor, even if I feel ill or if I, if I don't feel completely okay. I, I refuse to go to the doctor unless I'm totally incapable. Um, and it's this thing where, you know, we, you know, I guess we were bred to be animals and, 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 and property. Um, and I think that stigma has kind of attached itself to us throughout our entire history here. Look at the media, where we're always portrayed as something other than human beings that bleed, that suffer, that feel, that love, that cry. We're always something else. The thug, the animal, the rapper, the athlete. We're never just a human being that is as vulnerable as everyone else. And so going to the doctor would make make you more vulnerable? Is I that think the that's idea? a distrust. I don't, you know, we just, we don't, you know, Tuskegee experiment. Things like, have gone down. Things have gone down, you know, <laughs> okay. and it's like, uh... Yeah. Well, then let, let's talk about hip-hop if we yeah. can then, because you <laughs> know, when I think of the early days of hip-hop, I think of it as as being very much about that kind of bragging. Hyper-masculinity. Hyper-masculinity. Yes. Are things changing in hip-hop, and is that... And, and if so, why is that? You know, so being first generation uh, hip hop fan and part of the culture, definitely, I was definitely uh, groomed on the aspect of being the hyper masculine guy. Like if you're a rapper, you are the alpha male in the room, no matter how many alpha males are in the room. Um, and it's funny because recently you know, I have three teenage boys 
And, you know, I play some of my old school hip hop with them. My, my eldest is 20. And each of them at some point have said to me, Dad, like, why is like 90s hip hop so violent? You know, they love Jay-Z. They love Nas. They love Biggie. And, you know, you look at where Jay-Z is right now in society and, and you know, and in the culture. You know, old Jay-Z wasn't this, you know, elder statesman. Old Jay-Z was someone who glorified, you know, being in the streets and, you know, being in gunfights. And he actually shot his brother and he talks about it. So my sons were like, Dad, why were they so violent? And so they are fans, you know, their generation of, of, of hip-hop stars are the Kid Cudi's and the Kanye's. And they view hip-hop through this weird lens. They, they view hip-hop as uh, pre-Kanye mm. and post-Kanye. And they believe that Kanye was the one that kind of brought the emo into hip-hop, although that's existed in, in certain areas, you know, Tribe Called Quest, yeah. you know, De La Soul. But they're like, Dad, what, was, what, what the fuck was wrong with your generation. It was like, it was just a different time. It was just, you know, we had, you know, New York City was a different place. America was a different place. Yeah. I mean, you talked about that on, on the first episode of, of Mogul. Yeah. The, the New York of the late 70s was really rough. It was lawless. Yeah. We were on the verge of, 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 of being bankrupt. Um, and even, you know, the, 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 the form of policing was just totally different. You know, former policing then was very reactive. You know, we hadn't had, we hadn't gone through, you know, a drug epidemic like the crack epidemic. We, you know, we hadn't gone through, you know, the, 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 ab, you know, just the lawlessness that, that New York City was experiencing. So, you know, I've spoken to some police officers that worked during that era and they were like, we were trained to stop the muggings and the killings and the shootings and the robberies and the rapes. We were not trained to deal with, you know, the drug trade. We were not, trained to deal with, you know, counterterrorism. So it's this whole new era where police, policing has become so um, proactive now. And I think that's even changed, kind of like the um, the tone and the vibe of New York City. New York has been so gentrified, it's so Disney-fied right now. It's so relatively safe compared to the era that I grew up in and, and a lot of my then contemporary, contemporary rappers grew up in. So then the, those early years and even early decades of rap, the, the pre-Kanye era, if yeah. I may borrow the term, um, were those rappers trying to present the ideal state of what, of what a man ought to be? I don't think they were trying to present the ideal state of what a man ought to be as much as they were trying to express all they knew about survival and what it would entail for the ideal man to, to survive the conditions that they um, were presented with growing up. Yeah, You know, you had a lot of um, violence in the streets and playgrounds. You had a lot of dysfunction in families. You know, you saw countless families. You saw a generation of kids, a generation of the black family totally obliterated by the crack, crack epidemic and then the Uber policing and, you know, incarceration. Generations of families that have been wiped out. And this is all they could talk about. And this is the only way they could grow up to be a quote unquote man and, 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 and not only survive, but also support their family members. You have a lot of kids from that era, like Jay-Z talks about growing up and having to sell drugs so that he could support his mom and his siblings. And that was kind of like the thing back then. Um, and I also think at a certain point, as it became big business to glorify 
you know, the horrors that was taking place in the black community, that became like something that was like your code of honor. I survived this. I flipped packs. I shot someone. I got shot and survived. Look at the, the you know, immortalized Tupac Shakur. Prior to Tupac, you know, you hadn't you hadn't seen um, such violence transcend from the streets into the art. Mm-hmm. And here's this guy that became, you know, not only did he become this superhuman being that survived getting shot five times, but then when he got shot again subsequently and died, he became a martyr. So a lot of MCs, a lot of rappers felt that, you know, if you didn't get shot, if you didn't survive the worst of what the streets had to, to, to offer you, then you really didn't deserve a place in this, you know, in this stage of rap. So what changed with Kanye? Um, I think what changed with society, you know, as, 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 as hip hop really became like the prevalent, um, art form or, or music form, dominant art form, you know, you had kids that, you know, I mean, and this is from, from day one of hip hop, as we're talking like the, the growth of hip hop, where it, it kind of inserted itself in every aspect of our culture. You, you had middle age, I mean, uh, uh, middle-class black kids growing up. And listening to hip hop, and although you've had a lot of, and let me let me rewind, back in the '90s, um, with the I guess the drug trade being so prevalent in all aspects of our culture, you had a lot of middle class kids that got caught up in the drug game. You know, you had a lot of kids. Just just imagine Theo Huxtable of the Cosby Family being influenced to sell drugs. You had that happen to a lot of black families. Uh, particularly here in New York and throughout the United States. Um, and I think at a certain point, um, as America began to gentrify, as it became safe, safer to walk through our communities and our streets, a lot of the kids like gained a different sensibility. Like, I'm not DMX. I'm not 50 Cent. My parents are professors or doctors or lawyers. And I want to talk about things that, that are relatable to me and my peers. So I like to joke and say it was the Kanye kind of initiated the advent of like private school rap, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like, and you look at Childish Gambino and you look at Kid Cudi and you look at um, was Chance to Rap and it's a whole different sensibility. It's like that was before and you guys kind of had to rap like that to be considered valid or official in, 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 in rap culture. But we kind of reject that. We don't have to do that anymore. And we have options because we don't have to live like it's not the same world. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist. When you look at what's going on, I hate to, I don't want to sound like it's, I don't want to make it a cliche, but when you look at what's going on in communities like Chicago, it's still, it's still a war zone. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a lot of these kids are growing up in a safer world than we grew up in. I mean, it seems like there was an abrupt turn, though, with, with, you know, what you're talking about here, where people were responding to this, you know, this style from Tupac, from NWA forever, whoever it was, to almost now where the rappers who are successful, a lot of the rappers who are successful are turning inward just as sharply. So what was that? I mean, society didn't seem to change that dramatically. So what was that, the reason for that sharp turn? You know, I think, I mean, I, you know, I'm not the expert here, but I can only surmise, like, you know, this, one of the sharp turns, and I've heard this from a lot of, like, older school rappers, it's like, back then, it was cool to talk about selling drugs. Mm -hmm. And now it's cool 
to rap about using drugs. <laughs> so I think, you know, as more designer drugs have been, you know, introduced, back then it was just weed, coke, and crack. But as all of these designer drugs have been introduced into our community, when you've got the mollies and you've got all, you know, ecstasy and, and Zan, we live in a pill culture where these kids have been introduced to so, you know, it's safer to procure your drugs. It's cooler to take drugs. You can get high with, your, with the chicks and it's a fun night. And so I think just even that aspect of the culture has changed where it's cooler to be the drug user mm. than the drug deal. I think that's permeated you know, our, our, our culture completely, particularly in the rap community. Realizing now there's probably a lot of things you could rhyme with Adderall. Adderall, like Adderall, like, you know, Danny Brown was like the first rapper that I heard five years ago talking about how, you know, he had to use Adderall to get into this zone to write his work, Uh huh. you know? So if there's been this turn towards more introspection uh, and, and designer drugs, yeah. but, but for this, you know, for the sake of the the conversation towards this introspective thing, has that reflected in the black community at large, what's happening in hip hop? Has there been some of the the stigma lifted from talking about mental illness, vulnerability? I, I don't think the stigma has been completely lifted, but I think the conversation is happening. And I think that's the important thing. The conversation is happening. I speak to a lot of my peers and I, you know, like I'm middle-aged now. I have a lot, most of my peers are middle-aged and we have that conversation about, well, do you have a therapist? And some of us say, yeah. And some of us are like, I'm thinking about him. Some of us will say, you know, I don't need one, but the conversation is happening. Whereas 10 years ago, the conversation was not happening. I remember when I was um, very active in the music industry um, as an attorney. Um, and I remember at a certain point, I didn't know what was wrong with me. You know, I had just gotten married. I just had my two sons, um, had launched um, my law practice, and I was just knee-deep in just having to be present at all times. And at a certain point, I started to feel this sense of heaviness um, and just uh, disconnect and just wanting to check out. And I don't ever recall um, being suicidal, but there were days where, you know, I prayed for, like, the proverbial truck to jump the curb, to hit me, to take me out of my pain. And I would talk to my peers and I'd be like, dude, I need a vacation. I need a vacation. And their response was like, we're making good money. Why the hell would you want to take a vacation? You know, stop being lazy. It's going well. Yeah, man up. Yeah. And just snap back. And I couldn't until I found myself really coming to a point where I had just had to leave the music industry. Now, when I reflect and I look back now, I'm like, yeah, I definitely probably was depressed. So the conversation then definitely wasn't welcoming. And after I introduced the fact that I didn't feel well, I said, well, let me keep it to myself. Now the conversation is happening with hmm. ease amongst my peers. Uh, when you were going through that, and you, you said you wanted to disconnect. Yeah. Did you want to disconnect from your family or from your job? Or from I wanted both? to disconnect from everything because yeah. I, I constantly had to be on. I had to be on in the office. I had to be, you know, on professionally. When, when I was home, I had to be on. So there was no off. There was no, there was no break. There was no point where I could just heal or just, you know, regroup. And there was, you know, at the time, I didn't know what I was experiencing. So I didn't know. Once again, it wasn't that I was, I knew that I was suffering from something. It was like, what's wrong with me? So every day I found myself challenging myself to go harder when I had nothing to fuel me to go harder. 
to steer into exactly. the thing. Yeah. So did you did you have the thought of, okay, I've got a family, I've got, you know, I'm opening a law practice, I have everything anybody could want, therefore I'm doing well. When you have that, it's not that I have everything. It's that the weight has been intensified. Like it's heavier. I have to carry. I'm responsible now. Whereas I whereas up until a certain point, and I'm an only child. So whereas at a certain point I had the luxury of um being irresponsible and selfish um and whimsical and whatever and just free, carefree. All of a sudden, within a a matter of two or three years, that was taken away from me. I'm not even gonna say it was taken away from me. I just didn't have that anymore. Now I had to be present not only for myself, but for several people and my client base. Yeah. yeah. And that's heavy. Everything mattered. Every I, The buck stopped here. When did you identify that as depression? Recently. Yeah. Like, I would say recently. You know, it's funny. Like um, my ex-wife and I back in the 90s, we did um, have a therapist that we spoke to with regard to our marital issues that we were I'm um, experiencing at the time, but I never sat down with a therapist one-on-one up until about a year and a half ago. Why not? Um, financial, you know, I mean, I, I left my practice, so, you know, it's, it's, it's another financial burden. And, you know, I think the issue is not only that mental illness is a stigma, but mental health is a luxury, mm. you know? Uh, no what do you mean it's an expense you mm. know and 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 it's it not only is it an expense financially but it's a commitment time wise a lot of us don't have that time to sit on that couch every week and be committed for an hour you know so it's an expense it's a life change that you know life changes are very difficult you know habits are very difficult to break out of and taking care of your mental health is something that you kind of have to break through whatever lifestyle you have to really include that in your lifestyle. It's tricky too, because if you are suffering mentally, your brain will say, okay, you could spend that money on a therapist or you could, you know, you're spending on booze tonight or you could spend it on booze yeah. or, you know, you're probably not worth spending all that money on. So, you know, just, just or don't this, do that. Or not that I'm not worth. This is not worth, mm. you know, this is not worth. I can, the process of getting healthier. I can. Is not de- worth I it. mean, and and you know yourself. I mean, you've, you've you you know that, you know, a lot of us deal with mental health by self medicating, and you know, if if I can go and get boozed up three or four days a week as opposed to making a commitment to sit down, sitting down with my therapist, you know, every uh, every week, it's you know, the bar's on the corner. Yeah. You don't have to make an And now there's all these drugs in the community so I can get high yeah. and I can escape and then I can wake up and then I can escape. And it's like, you know, rinse and repeat, you know, you, you came to kind of understand more of this by working on, on mogul. Oh, definitely. When, when I, when we really started digging deep into, you know, the things that, that Chris Lighty had to suffer through, I was like, that's not only me, but that's so many of my peers. You're listening to our interview with hip hop icon, Reggie Osei. He passed away in December of 2017. More in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. 
We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show sometimes. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do get better. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. Stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge right there to Make It Okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back to our interview with the late Reggie Osei, also known as Combat Jack of the Combat Jack Show podcast. Last year, he hosted another podcast called Mogul, which was all about the life and death of Chris Lighty, a well-known, successful hip-hop manager who killed himself in 2012. Tell me about uh, about who Chris Lighty was and, and kind of what this thing was that he was living with as far as you've gathered. I mean, Chris Lighty was this guy that, you know, according to, you know, hip-hop standards— was the man. Like, he grew up in the epicenter of hip-hop. He grew up in the South Bronx. Um, he was forced at a, you know, he experienced a lot of uh, um, dysfunction in his family at, a, at an early age. He was forced to be the man of his house at the age of six. He witnessed um, domestic abuse at an early age. Um, he witnessed and experienced a lot of violence, you know, throughout his upbringing. Um, in high school, you know, he had to fight. And then with the, you know, the, just the just the culture of early hip-hop, you know, as much as it was a magical thing, as much as it was a transformative thing, you know, once again, it was street culture. So there was so much violence attached to it. So here's this guy who was conditioned to fight, was conditioned, as I said earlier, and as we say in, in, you know, in the black community, he was forced to always man up. And being forced to man up meant that there was no room for weakness. And then he gets thrown in or he jumps into the music industry where it's just ratcheted up at a diff at a higher level. You know, not only are you just forced to survive on the streets, but now you're really in the shark tank. You know, now you're in the big leagues where you're a professional killer or a professional victim. Kill or be killed. Because it's so competitive. It's so competitive. And... No, and it moves fast. And I it mean, moves fast. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like winning the championship. You won the championship this year. You won the Super Bowl. You won um, the the World Series next year. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you, it, there's no there's no vacation. So even if you have big success, all it does is raise the stakes for you to repeat it. And And this guy was such a pioneer. And this is one of the things that. You know, when you when you're a pioneer of your craft or of your of your industry, you pioneer it, and then all of a sudden you wake up, and you have a hundred more competitors trying to wipe you out. So now, not only are you competing against people that you've created the template for, but then you're competing against yourself to go further and create the next level of the template. Yeah, and so you're you, no longer the new thing. You're no longer the new thing, but you're forced to compete with yourself and others, and it's just it's just it's it's endless. If listeners haven't heard the series, I yeah. really encourage them to go listen to it. Um, Chris Lighty took his own life. Yes. Um, how long had he been living with with depression on top of everything else that he was going through? You know, I, I can't pinpoint exactly when. Yeah. I mean, who knows when? Yeah. But um, we do know when he checked in or kind of like 
it's in it's in the story as to when he you know when he realized that he had an issue, and he started get, seeking some 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 help. But I would imagine that he had to suffer through it for a very long time. And being someone as powerful as him in the music industry, someone who's managed like Puffy, you know, or Diddy Combs and Fifty Cent and Mariah Carey, and so you know, and just like changed the industry on so many different levels. Like someone like him could not afford to appear vulnerable. Well, and I got to think it's it makes it all the more dissonant when you're in that situation. I mean, I can only imagine having that kind of success, yeah. but you're on top of the world like that and you're still feeling so horrible. Yeah. It's got to just magnify. I mean, I think that, I, you know, from my experience and, and just covering uh, Chris Lighty's life so closely, the more you acquire, the more weight comes with it. So what what was it about telling Chris's story that resonated with you that made you say, hey, maybe maybe I got something going on myself? Um, just just knowing um, the environment of the industry and then just hearing about, you know, just the toxic relationship that Chris Lighty had, you know, with his wife. And just, you know, just it's like there's once again, it's, it kind of mirrors what I went through. There's no escape. I can't escape through work and I can't escape. When I go home, it's this constant on, and there's no, and you know, I, I just remember like some of my biggest deals that I closed, um, and people were like, "Oh my God, like I can't believe you did this, and this is so great." And inside, I'm just hollow. It's like I should be celebrating, but there's nothing to celebrate. You're not feeling anything. I'm not feeling anything. Hmm. I'm dead inside. But yeah, I'll go through the motions and I'll celebrate and I'll be the man and yeah, 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 yeah. But at the end of the day, it's like, what's next? I have to do something bigger. I hmm. have to in order to just survive. Did you feel like an imposter? I'm glad you said that. Um, you know, uh, a close friend of mine uh, who graduated uh, Georgetown Law with me um, became um, one of the top partners in one of the top firms in New York City. And the higher she rose, the more she would share with me how horrified that one day they would discover that she was an imposter. And that always stuck with me. And at a certain point, you know, because, I mean, we were figuring this thing out. Like, our parents weren't attorneys. Like, we don't come from that background. Um, and I started my own practice. So I was figuring out, figuring it out as I went. And I was every day, like, I, I felt like, okay, I'm doing well. But when somebody going to realize that I'm a fraud because mm. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So hearing some of that, uh, in, in reporting on Lighty, that, that did that get you to treatment? Um, you know, I, I have to confess that, um, I've been saying since we wrapped mogul that I have to start seeing my therapist again. I have not yet committed to that. I have you made not, an appointment at all? No, I have not made an appointment. I've kind of jotted it down in my notes. Like I got to start seeing, but you know, my life is still, I, I, I'm, I'm making all types of excuses and it's really just making the commitment to say, this is my special time. No one can interfere with it. And, but me identifying what that special time is going to be. Is most of your time taken up doing stuff for other people? Always, always. Although I found recently, and this might also be a sign of depression, the times that I'm not, the rare times I'm not doing anything for anybody, I'm sleeping. <laughs> and it feels so, I mean, I, you know, I mean, but it, it's, I need my sleep, right? I don't think that's depression. I think that's just, yeah. that's health. No, I'm sleeping. 
<laughs> I love sleeping now. Like, it's funny because, like, you know, people look at me and they say, oh, you've got this amazing sh- social life. And that's what, you know, my work brings. But when I'm not, I just, I'd rather Netflix and chill and uh, sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Just doze off. But there are days that I'm like, Reggie, you're kind of sleeping too much. You got to kind of get up and... <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I used to host a, a public radio show that got canceled, and it was this thing where, you know, I had the show that was just the show of my dreams. It was carried all over the country, and then it got canceled. And then I started spending a lot of time sleeping. Yeah, until finally my wife said, "I'm not going to allow this anymore." Yeah, you've you've hit your max, and now you need to get out of the bed. She told you to man up. She told me to man up <laughs> or person up or something. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and she made me get out of bed. I was thinking about the idea of stigma. Uh, when we were doing some shows last season. And I was thinking about what I should tell other people about, oh, you know, don't let other people weigh you down and you should get out there and get this fixed. And I was thinking about how incredibly easy that is for me to say. It's easy. It sounds so easy. It sounds easy. And especially it sounds easy coming from me, a, you know, a straight white guy. Um, Because I have... I have the the mechanisms of society to fall back on, right. uh, you know, in a time of vulnerability. And so I wonder how the idea of arguing against stigma works for for people who don't have that, for people who are in a in a society full of institutional racism. You know, it, I mean, you just you just hit it on the nail. You've you've got the you've got this system that, you know, exists and you know that it's an option. And you know that you can rely on it or fall back on it whenever you decide to do it. But for a lot of us, we have to piece it together because it does not yet exist for us. We hear about it. It sounds great. It sounds easy. But who do we call? Who do we trust? Is there a therapist that's very in tune with issues that exist in the black community? And what you're actually facing. Yeah, I I have a friend of mine who... um, is a psychologist, uh, African, African-American guy. Um, uh, and he talks about how when he was uh, studying, um, he was examining a patient um, that had been diagnosed as being uh, schizophrenic, criminally schizophrenic. And all of the people that had diagnosed this woman were white. So he sits down and he starts having a conversation with this woman. And I think she had stabbed her husband or something. And she he was like, well, why did you stab him? And she was like, because I, I hated the motherfucker. And they, they started laughing. They were having a conversation. And he understood exactly the context of where she was coming from. And so his peers were like, that wasn't funny. Right. That's how, aberrant behavior. How could you laugh at something that's so negative? Like, isn't she? And he was like, no, I think she might be suffering from some form of like bipolar condition but she's definitely not schizophrenic she's she's in the here and now but there was this disconnect in terms of how his peers right not knowing the culture and how they interacted with her and and he looked at the notes and one of the things that 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 um forced them to 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 to, to diagnose her with schizophrenia was like well she laughed at the most inappropriate things it's real cultural differences you know i'm sure in ireland we laugh at things differently than we do from people in 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 london or in russia like there it's just it's real Mm -hmm. and we have to you know we have to be aware that you know we all come from different places 
you know, in in the example that you gave of that woman, if your friend hadn't been there, the course she would have gone on oh, through seeking treatment exactly. would have been very different. Exactly. And I think I think that's also been part of our hesitation to even accept like we can un, we can relate to someone checking our blood pressure or our liver or our heart but someone getting into our head which is a very private place a very private and sacred space and you may i may not even feel safe around you I'm good, man. I'm 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 so good. Like <laughs> I'm good. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so like, you know, even in in, 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 in in my journey to really embrace mental health, like I'm really careful as to who, you know, and even it's like even culture, like, do I get a black woman mm. who may not understand or be sympathetic to what it is to be a black man? Am I going to be judged? You know, and then I actually found someone that I really trust and, and I just have to go back to them. So that, I mean, and then you add like insurance on top of that. Exactly. So many hurdles to yeah. even get treatment in the first place. Yeah. So what has changed that people are saying it's worth it to go through all those hurdles to get to this? I have a friend of mine and this guy is a pretty, like he's pretty. You've got a lot of friends. I mean, don't we all have a lot of friends? <laughs> I don't have as many friends as you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to hang out with your friend. <laughs> I have a guy who's a retired uh, police officer, black guy. He owns a bar now. Pretty tough guy. And when you look at him, like, there's no nonsense. You don't, he's, there's no fuck around with this guy. And, you know, recently he's been going through a lot of um, issues with regard to um, child custody and the whole nine and um, this ongoing, this endless legal battle. And I spoke to him recently and, and I was like, what are you doing today? He's like, I'm at my therapist. I was like, you're at your therapist? He's like, yeah. And I was like, how do you feel? He's like, you know, I can't. I still don't trust this, but I actually feel better every time I walk out of my set. Pardon me, out of my session. When you know, it's, it's when you hear someone sharing their experience of actual proof that this worked. Yeah. Or when you know the times that I've sat down with my therapist, I'm like, it made me feel better. It gave me context. You know, um, the last time I saw my therapist was about a year ago, and I had this whole paradigm had this whole, like I had this whole, blue, this paradigm, this whole map of what I was going through. And in one session, he was like, that's not what I see. You can continue to hold on to that. But I kind of see it like this. And once I saw his point of view, someone from the outside looking in, it's like, oh my God. And I just totally balled up what I had been holding and just started, started walking down a different path. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that, that's helped me tremendously. Just a different approach. To different approach. Like it's a different approach because it's a different problem. Yeah, you see it. You see it as a different problem. It sounds like there's been a shift in the the black community that you've observed, as well as in hip hop. Right. Is one informing the other? Are they both happening simultaneously on their own. It's the, we live in an information age, and I think also I think we've hit a point where you know you look at the phenomena of of black Twitter. Uh, on social media and the conversations that we were having in private. And I guess, I guess this goes back to what you were saying earlier. The secrets that we shared amongst each other back then are now on such a global stage. And so many of us recognizing the conversations from others that are just like us. And we're like, oh my God, you're going through this shit too? Like, we, And it's like, it's at this point, 
and we, there's so much ground to cover. But I, per, and this is just my perspective. It's like because the conversation is 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 part of it's 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 part of the center right now. It's been centered. It's like we deserve to be okay on all fronts. We deserve it. We've arrived and we deserve it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been a shift. Yeah. In the consciousness, we don't have to hide it anymore. We deserve to feel well. And that is realized, or that realization is, has been come to through an information age, through I th- an I think ongoing it's, dialogue? I, I, think it's the, I think it's the general conversation. Yeah. Like, I'm okay, you're okay, we need to feel okay. Yeah. Whereas, like, I, we didn't have, I didn't have the internet 15 years ago or 20 years ago, so it was like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me was the narrative. Now it's like, oh, no, I'm okay, I need to be well. Yeah. Well, and that makes me think of of music that I hear from Chance the Rapper, yeah. from, from Kendrick, th- where there's almost this uh, exhilaration of talking about yourself and talking about some problems that you have and, and kind of coming to a, to a happy place through it. I mean, not always, but a lot of the time uh, there's a kind of joy to it through that realization. Well, you know... Um... I think because all of us are intrinsically different, but we live in a society that tries to put us through this grinder and make us all the same. I think so many of us suffer from this thing of, you know, I don't fit in. I'm outside. You know, something is wrong with me. Um, And I think we're at this point right now where, you know, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Buddhist. I've been practicing Buddhist for uh, 28 years. And part of the practice is um, that because we're all um, we're all just so different, each of us, each individual is so unique. The shift has to go from why can't I fit into, oh my God, I'm so different. Let me rejoice in being so different and let me focus on what I bring to the table as opposed to what I don't bring to the table. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this we're seeing this kind of like uh, shift in consciousness where, no, there's nothing wrong with us. We belong here. As a matter of fact, we deserve to be here. We deserve to be here. And we like we've been here from day one. We deserve everything that the society in this country offers. And now we're going to accept it. And you built it. And we yeah, we built it. Can you think of music that you've heard recently that exemplifies what you're talking about? That Ch- I mean, the first person that comes to mind is Chance. Like Chance is just, you know, it's like it's so uplifting and, and just how he just blends not only just from hip hop, but like, you know, the house grooves from Chicago and then the gospel and the church and how that's so it's just so uplifting. It's, you know, I, I love it. Um, who else have I been listening to? Um, Chance really is the first person that comes to mind. Because I think he's at this level and he's just, his music is just so pure. Yeah. But it's still grounded in, you know, the harsh streets of Chicago. Right. You know? I, I mean, I don't know anything about anything, but especially not about hip hop. Yeah. But when when I heard Chance, I'm like, that, I've never heard that before. I've or, never heard anything like that or, before. Or Kendrick, or Kendrick, you know? Yeah. Kendrick is like a throwback to the civil rights movement where... um you know, we are unapologetically black and then we get accepted and we get integrated and we have to assimilate at some point. And here, you know, in the, in the, in the shadow of police brutality and looking at even though we've made some gains, things are pretty much the same. It's like, fuck it. There's nothing to apologize for. I'm here. 
there's this beauty, there's this magic, and I deserve to be well. Yeah. And I know the podcast game is so competitive, and I know that there's shows that are far more celebrated and, and respected than the Combat Jack show. But I can tell you, I can look in your eye and say, what I do, what I bring to the table, there's no one that does it better than me. Mm. And that is not braggadocious. That's not being like hyper-masculine. That's something like I inherently know. What I bring to the table, no one can do what I do. Mm. Better than I do. We have a lot more about Reggie Osei on our Facebook. He is someone worth learning more about. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our recording engineer for this episode was Matthew Nelson of Gimlet Media. Thanks, Gimlet. And our technical director was Veronica Rodriguez. Our forces of web and social media are commanded by Christina Lopez from her lair in Los Angeles. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Our theme song is called Pagliacci. It was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller of the rock and roll band Old 97s. Much more about Rhett is at his website because that's why people have websites, rhettmiller.com. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. Free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The 8255 also spells talk. I wonder if you'll listen to hip-hop differently after hearing this episode. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and makeitok.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. Makeitok.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting the conversation about mental illness, that can be awkward. Make It Okay has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at makeitokay.org. We're on Twitter at THW of D. That's T-H-W-O-F-D. You can also write an electric mail to us. Our email address is thwod, T-H-W-O-D, at americanpublicmedia.org. We're on the World Wide Web also with a website. You can hear each and every previous episode of this program there, hilariousworld.org. Hey, make sure to write a review of us for Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Apparently, the more buttons you push, the ratings, the subscribing, the review writing, that's better for us to reach more people, which is what we want to do. On our next episode, the delightful star and creator of the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Rachel Bloom. I walk so slowly I can only breathe inside my bed smells like a tampon. I'm in a sexy French depression. I'm John Moe. Bye now. <laughs> <laughs>